Monday, January 16, 2019. This is Born to Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Tomorrow, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie, will be putting on a State of VA address. It will be live-streamed from VA Central Office, available at VA's website, our YouTube page, but most easily our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. If you go to that Facebook page, the the video will be live no later than 12.55, and the secretary is queued to go on at 1 p.m. The event will go as long as two hours, and he will be addressing a handful of things, such as the state of VA, community resources for veterans, department priorities, and he will address questions from the last community town hall he did. You can watch live and register at a link that is available on our blog, blogs.va.gov. In the top stories, you will see the State of VA blog post in there, directions on how you can register to watch it live through webcaster or, again, simply go to facebook.com slash veteransaffairs to see the Facebook live feed there. So today's interview is a unique one as a intern of mine decided to sit down with one of his professors and conduct an interview akin to the way we conduct most interviews here on Born to Battle. Zach Wheeler is studying international studies. He's in his second year at John Hopkins University. He interviews his professor, Professor Robert Friedman, who served during Vietnam, who talks to us about a great leader he had while he was in the military, his decision to join the military, his philosophy on giving back to his country two years of service, and his career in academia, especially being a professor at West Point. Enjoy. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Hello, and welcome to the Born the Battle podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Robert Friedman. Robert Friedman received his commission from Army ROTC in 1962 at the University of Pennsylvania and had a three-year deferment to go to graduate school at Columbia University. Professor Friedman took the infantry officer's basic course in Fort Benning, Georgia. His first position was as heavy weapons platoon leader in an infantry company in Fort Hood, Texas. Professor Friedman was pr- promoted to first lieutenant and then captain in short order, and became company commander serving in Fort Fort Hood 1st Battalion, 41st Infantry from September 1965 to February 1967. He was then transferred to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where he taught courses on history and Russian history. He left the Army in July of 1970. Professor Friedman has pursued a career of academia ever since, and is currently an adjunct professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. I'm currently taking his awesome course, Russian Foreign Policy. Professor Freeman, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. (laughs) 
All right, so just to get us started, um, Professor Freeman, could you talk to us a little bit about your decision to join the United States military in the first place? Yeah, it was, I think, a pretty basic decision. My philosophy is if the country protects you while you're growing up, you owe it at least two years in return to help protect the country. So that was my decision to volunteer for ROTC. Okay, and great. And so um, I said that you deferred to go to graduate school in Columbia. What was that like? Well, you know, I was uh, working on my doctorate at Columbia, and then Vietnam blew up, and they said, Lieutenant, we need you right <laughs> now, especially since you're an infantry lieutenant. So where did I get sent? I got sent to Fort Hood, Texas. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Um, do you think you could tell us about a close friend or a leader or someone that you looked up to while you were in the military? Yeah, my battalion commander was uh, Colonel Ayers, uh, later went on to become a general. He was my immediate commander at, at Fort Hood. So I learned a lot about leadership and planning from him. Oh, wow. Great. Um, and, Professor, what prompted your position, uh, your transition out of the military? What, what really I, I knew from the beginning I was a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And it says, so I said my philosophy was give the country at least two years because it protected you when you were growing up. But I knew I wanted a career in academia. So I thought five years probably was enough time to go <laughs> to my main career. And so how did you know you wanted a career in academia? What? I, I've, ever since I was in high school. Uh, I decided I was interested in international relations, right. and the best way to do that is to become a college professor. Right. <laughs> to be a college professor. Well, I'm also looking into becoming a college professor, so maybe we could talk about that at some point, Professor. Good. Um, and so your doctorate, what exactly was that? My doctorate was in international relations and Russian studies, sort of a joint doctorate. I did my dissertation on how the then Soviet Union used its ec economic pressure to try to get political obedience from communist China, Yugoslavia, and Albania. Oh, wow. Okay. Very complicated. Some, some stuff that we're maybe learning in class now. Mm -hmm. um, and could you, could you maybe describe um, what exactly, like what, what did a day look like in uh, the 1st Battalion at, at, first, at Fort Hood? Well, obviously, you get up, you go, you see that nothing bad has happened the <laughs> night before, you check in, and you check the roster, and you see if anybody's sick or injured, whatever. Then you go for the planning of the day. Now, it may be uh, maneuvers. We were an armored infantry battalion, so occasionally we would go maneuvering with tanks. I was in charge of armored personnel carriers. And you're supposed to maneuver armored personnel carriers with tank, at least according to the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but not all of my commanders followed the book and thought tanks were number one and armored personnel carriers, carriers were only number two. Interesting. So that's what a typical day looked like. Yeah, maneuvering or maintenance. Maintenance was very important. I also served a stint as maintenance officer in the battalion. So I got to appreciate why you need to maintain your car, your armored personnel carrier. Right. Your artillery very much, yeah. Okay, cool, Professor. And could you maybe talk a little bit about your time as a professor at West Point? What was that like? Well, it was a very pleasant experience for me. First of all, you have the top of the Army there. I mean, the, very, the students were very good. Um, the, uh, my fellow professors were very good. And uh, it was a chance to interact with people who later went on to make major careers in the military or in civilian life. I mean, Dana Mead, who unfortunately just died, was the exec officer for a while. And he went on to make a wonderful career um, as a CEO. 
and and other people, some of whom I've been able to keep in contact with. Wow. So a good experience, top students. But I should tell you my best experience. Yeah. <laughs> my best experience, there was a lot of social pressure on the professors to play basketball. Oh, no way. And since I love to play basketball, <laughs> even though I'm short, you know, you, you know, every time I came in, you know, we could always be sure that instead of lunch, we would play basketball. And that was that. very positive experience. <laughs> That's awesome. No dunking for you, Professor. No dunking for me, sadly. <laughs> okay, cool. Very interesting. Um, Professor, could you maybe talk a bit about your career in academia after you left the military? What are some, I know you have a ton of different personal stories, but what are some of your favorites? And feel free to talk as long as you want or as short as you want. Well, the things that I do, which are about half on Russia and the former Soviet Union, about half on the Middle East, it's given me the opportunity to travel a lot. And I was on a number of U.S. government delegations, both to Moscow and Beijing. I was also on a Brookings delegation, as you may know, to Tunis to talk to Yasser Arafat back in 1989 to see if he was uh, serious about saying he wanted peace with Israel. Right. So, I mean, this is a, a very real plus for being in academia. Right. And, that, and do you feel that um, maybe any of the skills that you learned in the military, do you feel that that transferred to kind of this more diplomatic process or do you feel they're kind of separate spheres or... Well, basically, they're separate spheres, but once you learn leadership, right. and there was good leadership in my RTC courses, and again, you learn leadership, literally OJT on the job, <laughs> if, if you're an officer, but in dealing with people, getting them to go along with what you want uh, is a skill, right. and I think that was a skill I tried to hone in the military. Right, and so that is maybe your, I, this question I have is describe an experience or skill that you gained in the military. So that would be your kind of, your take. Yeah, it's leadership. It's leadership and how to get people to do what you want them to do right. in a nice way. And do you think the military is the really best way to learn that or are there other? Uh, it's certainly, it's one of the ways. And it's a good way to learn it. Right. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Well, I have, I have this last question, but uh, I am also really interested about, um, I don't know. Could you give us maybe like a personal anecdote of one of your diplomatic missions? Do you have any <laughs> fun stories, Professor? Well, again, probably my most fun story, if, if that's the word to use, fun, was, right. was sitting with Yasser Arafat in Tunis. At that point, Pilo was in exile after the Israelis had driven him out of Beirut. Mm -hmm. And they finally came around to saying, yes, we're willing to recognize Israel, live in peace with Israel, except then UN Resolution 242. So I remember there were about 50 of us sitting around in the room when the discussion started. And uh, I remember raising the point uh, with uh, Mr. Arafat saying that, look, uh, you, with your statement, you've convinced the left wing of the Israeli Labor Party. What you have to do is convince the right wing of the Labor Party, then Yitzhak Rabin, and at least some of the centrists in the Likud Party, like Omer, Echud Omert and others, and then maybe we could make progress. And he looked at me and said, oh, all you're doing is worrying about Israel's interests. Look at all my problems. I have to worry about Hamas. I have to worry about Syria, et cetera. Then we broke for dinner. And it was only within the Palestinian movement, there's Fatah and a lot of other groups like the Popular Front, Popular Front for Liberation, et cetera, Saikwa and others. It was only his own people. So he changed like a chameleon. He was a real actor. He <laughs> comes up to me and says, Bob, you know, I know where you're coming from, but look, you have to understand my problems too. 
And since uh, I'm Jewish and I keep kosher, he got me a nice kosher meal for dinner. So we had a lovely discussion. And, and from that, I came away uh, convinced that the guy is an actor, but at least he should be tested. So I wrote an article for the New York Review of Books called My Dinner with Arafat, <laughs> laying out what I thought should be done. Oh, wow. Uh, that's probably the most interesting anecdote I can share with you. That was very interesting, Professor. Um, and what about your time in, you, you went to China at a point? Yeah, say? yeah, I went to China. We, right on the eve of the Gulf War. So the veterans here who might, might have served in the Gulf War, first Gulf War, might be interested. Uh, there's a delegation of academic experts. At that point, China was just getting into Middle Eastern studies. Right. So they asked us to bring our syllabi and, and all that stuff with us so we could help train their experts what books to read, how to organize courses, et cetera, because they were just getting interested in the Middle East. Well, right. we got there in uh, relatively early January of uh, 1991, and the Gulf War was about to erupt. And the Chinese, being a, a autocracy, a centralized government, had mobilized all the universities to write papers on, you know, oh, wow. what would Iran do, what would Israel do, how would the Russians react. So each of us had our own specialty. Uh, one was a Palestinian specialist. I took care of Israel on the Russian end of things. Another was an Iranian specialist. So 18 of the 19 institutions we visited in mainland China. Mm -hmm. All they wanted to know was what, what are each of these groups going to do so they could write their papers, <laughs> give, them <to> the central, <laughs> give them to the central government. Right. Uh, only the 19th one um, in Xi'an, of all places, was interested in, in, in the academics of it. Oh, wow. Cool. Well, thank you, Professor, once again. Um, and maybe a, an interesting line of, of conversation is if there are, I'm sure there are some veterans or um, you know, ROTC students that are currently listening to this podcast, what would you say to those uh, students or veterans if they wanted to get interested in a career in academia? What, um, what is an interesting or a proper path they could take to achieve that? Well, you need to go on and get a PhD. Well, that's critical. I was very fortunate because while I was stationed at West Point, I was able to finish the dissertation I had started at Columbia right. while I had my deferment. So you need to get a PhD, and you need to get some publications. Right. And uh, if you can start writing early, that's the best thing. Right. Okay. Well, great, Professor. And maybe just to close this out, do you have any um, do you have any veterans or veteran organizations that you're excited about currently, or do you think um, you'd like to learn more? Well, you know, I'm. It's a veteran myself, although nobody ever fired at me, and I never fired at anybody, fortunately. You know, veterans are critical, and I think the government should pay even more attention than it's paying now to veterans' issues. Right. I mean, we had scandals in the veterans' departments, which were extremely sad. Hopefully, these are being cleaned up. But, you know, we owe a lot to the veterans, and it's very, very important the country takes care of them. Right. And just from my perspective, Professor, uh, working for the Department of Veteran Affairs for the past couple of months, it really does seem like they're really, you know, active, engaged individuals really trying their, in the words of my boss, Mr. Lawson, trying their darndest to um, to really fix out those problems and um, make sure that every veteran is taken care of. Yeah, well, that's critical. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor. It's been um, a lovely conversation. And my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and good luck to all the veterans out there. 
My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Thank you to Mr. Friedman for his time, for sitting down with Zach, and big props to Zach for conducting a, a lovely interview. Uh, well executed. Well done, sir. I think you've done a fine job at contributing here on Born the Battle. Just a reminder, the Secretary's Town Hall is tomorrow, January 17th, starting at 1 p.m. You can go to blogs.va.gov to find the blog that tells you all the different ways to watch, but I recommend simply going to facebook.com slash veteransaffairs. The Facebook live feed will go live at 12.55 p.m. The secretary will be on at 1, and he will be talking about community resources for veterans, the state of VA, department priorities, and will be addressing questions from the last community town hall. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for the late Joe Jackson. Joe recently passed. I thought it would be appropriate to recognize him here on this week's Born the Battle with the reading of his Medal of Honor citation. Service is U.S. Air Force, Division 311th Air Commando Squadron, Da Nang, Republic of Vietnam. Conflict, Vietnam War, Year of Honor, 1968. Citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Lieutenant Colonel Jackson distinguished himself as a pilot of a C-123 aircraft. Lieutenant Colonel Jackson volunteered to attempt the rescue of a three-man U.S. Air Force combat control team from the Special Forces Camp at Comduck. Hostile forces had overrun the forward post and established gun positions on the airstrip. They were raking the camp with small arms, mortars, light and heavy automatic weapons, and recoilless rifle fire. The camp was engulfed in flames and ammunition dumps were continuously exploding and littering the runway with debris. In addition, eight aircraft had been destroyed by the intense enemy fire and one aircraft remained on the runway, reducing its usable length to only 2,200 feet. To further complicate the landing, the weather was deteriorating rapidly, thereby permitting only one airstrike prior to his landing. Although fully aware of the extreme danger and likely failure of such attempt, Lieutenant Colonel Jackson elected to land his aircraft and attempt to rescue. Displaying superb airmanship and extraordinary heroism, he landed his aircraft near the point where the combat control team was reported to be hiding. While on the ground, his aircraft was the target of intense hostile fire. A rocket landed in front of the nose of the aircraft but failed to explode. Once the combat control team was aboard, Lieutenant Colonel Jackson succeeded in getting airborne despite the hostile fire directed across the runway in front of his aircraft. Lieutenant Colonel Jackson's profound concern for his fellow men at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Air Force and reflect great credit upon himself and the armed forces of his country. We honor his service. 
that wraps up episode 130. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know there's a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I do appreciate you spending your time listening to these powerful stories told by our nation's veterans. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. Be sure to tune into tomorrow's Town Hall event, 1 p.m., January 17th. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at D-E-P-T Vet Affairs. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. Oh, 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 oh,